0: Have you been putting off a difficult conversation or avoiding it completely? Do you want better outcomes in your most important conversations, either at home or at work? Then I am happy to tell you that I am looking forward to another book launch for How Minds Change. This event is going to be something where we explore this very topic. You can join me and negotiation expert, conflict resolution expert, communication expert, Misha Globerman for an experimental, interactive live conversation lab at the Rotman School of Management in Toronto on October 17th, either in person or via live stream. Tickets are available at the link in the show notes for this episode. We will invite someone from the audience to share their real world problem with communication, something that always leads to what feels like a dead end argument, some sort of intractable relationship destroying thing. And then we will walk them through the theory and practice of how to reboot that relationship and have the conversation they wish they could have using the science covered in how minds change and using the practice that Misha uses in his profession. Live, live stream, Toronto, October 17th, tickets available. This is going to be really fun. I can't wait to see you there. Yeah. Another live book launch event for the book that I wrote called how minds change, which by the way is available everywhere And I did the audiobook, and that's available everywhere. And for people who are still wondering about the audiobook being available in territories other than the United States and Canada, all that paperwork is taken care of, and it should be available soon. So look for that in your audio playing product platform thing of choice very, very soon. Oh, and I should mention that it is now available on Spotify. Spotify is now doing audiobooks. And you can go to Spotify, just look for How Minds Change in their audiobook player, and it's right there. All right, enough promotion. Let's start this episode.
1: about the power of
0: Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode
1: 244. In poker, you better be able to fold a lot. And if if you're thinking about sort of what's the difference between an amateur and uh, an elite poker player, it's the ability to fold more.
0: That was the voice of Annie Duke. And before I tell you who Annie Duke is, I apologize for this audio. The quality of this audio is going to be a little bit off because I'm recording this on the road. I'm in Toronto about to do a book launch for How Minds Change. I'm recording this from my room. And just two weeks before, right now, when I'm recording this audio, I sat down with the great Annie Duke to interview her about her new book, Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. I was thrilled and honored and humbled to get a chance to do this event with Annie. We now share a publisher and an editor and a whole team of people at Portfolio who support us and help us write books and do other things. And this event was one of those things—a live Q and A for people who pre-ordered *Quit*, her new book, about how to develop a very particular skill, which is how to get better at knowing when to flip between grit and quit, as she puts it, how to. Know which goals and plans and current endeavors and relationships and businesses and so on are worth sticking to and which are not, and when that can change mid-project, mid-endeavor, mid-relationship, and so on. I asked Annie if it would be okay to play the audio from our event, and she said, yeah. And so here we are. And before we start, I should mention, not only do we share a lot of help in Book World, I'm also part of the Alliance for Decision Education, a nonprofit Annie co-funded whose mission is to improve lives by empowering students through education programs in things like critical thinking and decision skills. Also, who is Annie Duke? She is a former professional poker player who won the 2004 World Series of Poker Tournament of Champions, and she's the author of Thinking in Bets and How to Decide. And this is our conversation about her new book, Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away.
1: While our speakers are getting settled, I'll just give brief introductions. Annie Duke is a speaker, consultant, and best-selling author of several books, including the brand new book, Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. It was released today to instant critical acclaim. The Wall Street Journal has called it illuminating, perceptive, and timely. Annie will be interviewed by David McGraney, the science journalist, podcast host, and best-selling author most recently of How Minds Change, which was also published by Portfolio. And now I'm going to turn things over to Annie and David. Don't forget to put your questions in the Q&A module and enjoy the discussion. Hey, Annie. Hey, David.
0: So, uh, I was saying as we were getting ready here, this is an extreme honor on my side of things. And I'm so happy to be hanging out with you. Uh, how's it going so far? Introducing this into the world? What does it feel like to be enjoying pub day?
1: I I don't know if enjoy is the word that I would <laughs> use. Um, so first of all, I'd like to say that, you know, the fandom is mutual. So, um, I'm pretty excited to be chatting with you. It's
0: impossible for me to believe, but that's, thank you. No, thank it's you true. That.
1: Actually. So we didn't talk about, so we, we talked a little bit about my dad in, in the pre-chat, but, um, uh he 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 came to my house one thanksgiving clutching your book you're not uh, so smart smart all he did was talk about it and then he left it on the kitchen counter and (laughs) demanded that i read it
0: (laughs) that's amazing which he does
1: he demands things like that so i just yeah he was like clutching it he's like this book is so good so i actually i have your book in 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 my house but it was originally my father's copy oh
0: that's so rad it's so weird isn't that great Uh, So, yeah, this is surreal and wonderful for me, and I'm so happy that we could be here. I'm glad everybody could join us to do this. Um, I've got a million questions in my head. We only have 30 minutes. I'll never get to all of them. But one thing I want to say is, as I read your book, I expected one thing and sort of got another. I didn't realize there was sort of this stealth uh, thing getting in there about decision-making and judgments. and And then, you know, you have Kahneman right there on your cover now who's saying, hey, go buy this book. It's great. What does that feel like to have Daniel Kahneman say, "No, really, you should check it out
1: well, i'll I'll tell you what felt really good was when Daniel Kahneman said he learned a lot from it, That was probably the best thing outside of, you know, my children and my husband that, <laughs> that ever happened to me. And um, so, I, yeah, I mean, I feel like i i'm I'm very lucky because this book, you know, really took a village. And lucky for me, that village included Daniel Kahneman, Richard Thaler, both Nobel laureates, um, whose work is very foundational to sort of our bias against quitting. And so I was lucky enough to have access to them. Uh, Danny, we talked a few times. Richard, in particular, I mean, he read many versions of the book, gave me really deep and insightful comments on it. Lots and lots of zooms, sort of pinging me, pointing me in the right direction. Barry Staw, who's an incredible figure in in the field as well really generous with his time and there was just a whole bunch of other people too many of whom have blurbed on the back of the book but you know Phil Tetlock, Don Moore, all these people who just like in their own right have written amazing books that everybody should go read and I just pinched myself like trying to figure out how I had access to these people. One of the one of the images that comes to my mind is when when I was growing up you know we had our you know television that had where I live three channels and uh, this like braided rug. And I imagine this person, that version of me sitting on that rug, who's like seven um, in a, in this town in New Hampshire with my school teacher, dad and seeing people on TV, you know, and it, and sort of saying, what would that person think that, you know, I got to spend all this time with like Danny Kahneman and Richard Thaler. And, and I, I just, I, I just pinched myself. I can't even believe that they got to help with the book. No,
0: you're super fortunate. And it's, it's neat to be like, I'm a co-nerd in this world of, of decision-making judgments, rationality, psychology stuff. And yeah, it thrills me that to, I feel like now there's some uh, degrees of separation converging and that feels really cool. So I, I, I'm very happy for you, and and they're right. It is a really cool book.
1: Well, but but it's a really cool book mostly because of them. I mean, that's the thing. It's like all all of these people who were so generous with their time. The fact is that it's their work, decades and decades and decades of work on errors in human judgment that is foundational to the book. So without them. I don't, this book doesn't exist. And, and certainly like without their comments, it doesn't exist in the form that it's in, which I'm, is much better for having had all of these people helping me. And that's separate and apart from the people who made incredible introductions for me to people like Stuart Butterfield, who uh, makes an appearance in the book. Um, so I, you know, I feel like I, I definitely didn't write this book alone. And it is what it is because of the people that were willing to give me their time. Mm-hmm. So that was just really lucky. It just,
0: it's great. It was a great title. I also love, hang up your gloves is right there. Uh, we'll talk about some of that in just a second. I also enjoyed on Twitter today, seeing people's reactions. Some people had just, it was their first time to hear about it. And there are all these things about, you should tell this famous person, you should tell this famous person when it's time to quit. <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> and, yeah, and uh, also I love the one that was like, wow, self-help books are really changed these days. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> it's, uh, but that's that's the the secret sauce of this and the stealth message. I love that throughout the book, you keep telling people to be a better decision maker. You need to skill up on quitting. I like that phrasing. Uh, and this is an actual quote from the book and this is where I'll start asking some questions is that uh, you said, imagine if we had to stick to everything forever. If every decision we made was a forever decision. And you have a quote, this is the quote, uh, if I had to skill somebody up to get them to be a better decision maker, quitting is the primary skill I would choose because the option to quit is what allows you to react to a changing landscape. Okay, that's a fantastic sort of theme and thesis statement. What was your inspiration for this? I want to like assume it had to be poker related, but it could be something else. Uh, and Since I don't know yet, uh, inform me. How did How did this become an idea that insisted upon it being a book?
1: Oh, gosh. So, you know, it's I think it's always so hard to reconstruct these things. So first of all, I'm, I, I, I am someone who is both very gritty and very quitty. So uh, I stick to very hard things, but I also quit things a lot. So uh, I quit graduate school after five years um, and left to become a poker player. I quit poker to pursue what was already a, a flourishing career in uh, speaking and consulting. Um, but I needed to free up a whole bunch of time to write some books that I really felt like writing. Uh, this is the third one of those. Um, so, you know, and then, and then separate from that, just separate from sort of the arc of my life, which is a lot of what feels like a lot of left terms, although thematically they're the same is that in poker, you better be able to fold a lot. And if if you're thinking about sort of what's the difference between an amateur and, uh, an elite poker player, it's the ability to fold more. Essentially, like elite poker players play only about percent of the two card combinations that they're dealt, whereas amateurs play over fifty percent of them. And that's just like to start the hand. That doesn't have to do with like they're better at folding in the middle of hands. They're better at figuring out when they should get up from games because they really recognize something that's incredibly important: is that if you continue to play a hand that isn't worthwhile anymore, that's money that you can't use on a hand that is, and that is a way to go broke. So this becomes something that poker players talk. About. Talk and think about like really deeply trying to get better at this particular skill of quitting. That being said, like in terms of this particular book, I think the inspiration actually came from my last book. Somebody once said something to me. I I don't know. You can tell me if you've heard this before that for them in their writing, the next book was always like one page or half a page in the previous book. And I didn't really understand what they meant until this happened. So I wrote my last book, How to Decide, and there's about Three paragraphs, maybe on on quitting that have to do with this idea that if you're if you're starting things when you're uncertain, like if I start something, I don't have all the facts and there's a whole bunch of luck that's going to be involved. And so I have to do that when I'm incredibly uncertain. And after I start, I'm going to learn a whole bunch of new stuff. So quitting the option to quit is what allows you to react to the new stuff that you learn. And frankly, it's what allows you to make decisions when you're so uncertain in the first place, because you can, you can change course when you find out new things. So um, I just had a page about that. Like it was, it was nothing in my previous book. Like, Hey, the option to quit is super valuable. You should understand that that allows us to decide faster um, when we're deciding under uncertainty. That's kind of all I said about it. So I'm doing podcasts in 2020, in October of 2020. And it's a very long book and here's this one page and every podcast I'm directing to the one page. It's the thing that I really wanted to talk about. And as I kept getting that signal, I was like, I don't know, this is really bugging me. Um, and you know, I just started saying like grit isn't always good. Like it, look, Angela Duckworth's work is amazing and people should go buy the book grit. I think it's incredible, but there, we need to understand that it's not good period. Like you have to think about the context. And uh, after, sort of at the end of October, I called my agent up and I said, I think I want to write a book called Quit. And that was that, you know, and it was, and it was just because I couldn't stop thinking about it.
0: That's the best. Like, I, I truly believe in the ideas that insist upon themselves because you, you, you come up with a thousand billion ideas, hopefully. Yeah,
1: that's it. You have to quit a lot of them. You're,
0: you have a big garbage fountain of ideas in, installed in your, in your office and you're thinking about, oh, this could be a... blog post, this could be a podcast, this could be a book. But there's some things, that a lot of them just fade into into memory and and you see other people doing things maybe and you're like, well, they did that better than me. But every once in a while, one will just stick around. And it's thematic too. You talk about that very thing in the book, uh, which is pretty fantastic. And we'll get to grit in a second because I want to make sure that people who are listening understand that you that you are not starting beef with Angela Duckworth with this with this book.
1: I don't think Angela if someone said oh you need to have like a discussion with Angela Duckworth that would be like fireworks. And I was like no we agree.
0: Yeah, cuz you you're saying that grit and quitter the two parts of the there are two sides of the same coin. Right. Let's just go there before I feel like we naturally can segue to it. What what is the sort of nuanced thread the needle part of grit versus quit for you?
1: So my favorite topic here. So here's the great thing about grit is that it gets you to stick to hard things that are worthwhile, right? So so most things that are really worthwhile, that are going to be very fulfilling, you're going to have rough patches. It, there's going to be hard stuff that's involved. You're going to have to persevere through that in order to you know, get to the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. So that's what grit is amazing for. It gets you to stick to hard things that are worthwhile. The problem with grit is that it also gets you to, to stick to hard things that aren't worthwhile. So here's the thing about Angela Duckworth. is She's saying grit, the ability to be able to power through hard things is really, really important because otherwise you'll give up on worthwhile stuff. But she would never, ever say, which I think is how people misread her work, She would never, ever say, just stick to stuff. She's saying like, go find this is that. So her book is grit, the power of passion and perseverance, right? It's, you have to find the thing you're passionate about. That's really worthwhile. That's like lighting you up and you have to quit all the rest of the stuff. And the issue that we have is, and it's a lot of it is because we're sort of rationalizing, we're sort of fitting the world to this bias against stopping um, that we have is that grit is a virtue. And quit as a vice. We think about them as opposing forces where one is good as one is bad. And grit is is the hero of the story. This is how you build character, right? So it's actually like in a lot of ways synonymous with character. So, I mean, David, I can just ask you that. If I call you a quitter, do you think I'm complimenting you?
0: It would make me feel very bad. Please don't call me a quitter. <laughs>
1: right. Because that means you're a loser, a right. or failure, a or coward, which is, is in fact one of the synonyms for the word quit quitter. So... This now sets up this really bad thing where where it becomes grit for grit's sake because we think that it builds character. And that is the thing that I was trying to do with quit is say there needs to be a conversation. Oh, and by the way, you misinterpret Angela Duckworth's amazing work anyway, right? Because the key is not so much stick to things because they're hard, which is how people think about grit. Right. Stick to things because they're hard, because that will build character. It will show that I have what it takes. It's stick to things that are worthwhile. And that's what people don't understand. And the key is, and this is why we have to really skill up on quitting, is we have to be able to tell the difference. We have to know what's worthwhile and what's not. And that's what's really hard because we're on, you know, that's uncertainty, right? Like this is the that's just how it is for us.
0: Yeah. I love that all this is about uncertainty and ambiguity and the weird psychological phenomenon that will bubble up in that in that. You talk all about this in the book, from the endowment effect to uh, all sorts of things. But I also love that you just come out of the gate saying, hey, you know that whole thing, quitters never win? I played professional poker many years. Uh Quitting is a skill set. And uh, the people who are better at quitting in poker are the ones who beat the people who are not as good at quitting. And you don't want to play every hand at the end. Otherwise, why would we even give you the option to fold? That would be ridiculous. That's
1: exactly right. And
0: Kenny Rogers would be not part of... <laughs> Would not be part of our, the cultural zeitgeist if we remove this very important thing. It seems odd that we, as a culture, we would stuck to it. Yeah, continue. Yeah,
1: Please. no, I mean, I, I was just agreeing with you. We, we have this incredibly valuable option, right? So we, as humans, we are in the very difficult position of having to decide to start things when we know very little. So you can think about, like, if you hire someone, what do you really know about somebody that you hire? You know, you have their CV and like two recommendations and a, a few interviews. I, you hardly know anything about them. And that's true of almost everything that we start, whether it's a project or a product that we're launching or or, or uh, a relationship. You know, when you go on a date with somebody, you don't, don't know very much about them. So you're going to discover a whole bunch of information afterwards. And it, it's incredibly, think about how hard that is, right? That puts us in a very difficult position because we're having to make these educated guesses, these forecasts. Uh, given the very limited information we have about how the path that we're choosing, what we're starting is going to turn out. Lucky for us, we have the option to quit. So when we get that news that the path we're on isn't a great path to be on, we have the option to switch to something that is more worthwhile. It's very lucky, super valuable option, and we don't use it. We don't like it. We think if we quit before we know for certain that there's no other choice, that somehow we're a failure. And the thing is, when you talk about like this this idea that being a good quitter is what creates success, this is why. Because if you quit well, it will get you to where you want to go faster. It will allow you to achieve your goals more, contrary to the idea that if we quit, it will stop our progress, which I think is part of what we think. Because if I'm on a path that isn't worth pursuing that isn't actually helping me to achieve happiness or health or fulfillment or whatever it is that I'm trying to achieve in my life. And I've discovered that and I have the signals there that this is not the path that I should be on. Every extra minute that I spend on that path is slowing down my progress. Not only is it slowing down my progress, but it's slowing down my progress and compared to another path that I could get on that would allow me to go faster. It's like as simple as this. You you take a route to work and then you find out that a tractor trailer turned over on the road. If you stay on the road, you're slowing your progress toward your destination. Get off at the nearest exit and go find a faster way to get there. And just as, just as you know, when traffic turns bad on you, you really want to exit the road. This is true of pretty much anything that we start. And if we don't get good at that, we are wasting time. And that is a tragedy because our lives are short.
0: And you, you detail all sorts of stories in the book of this. People who should have turned around when they were going up a mountain. Uh, and Because of that, uh, well, they're still on that mountain. And you can pass by them if you try to go up to that mountain. You talk about all sorts of business decisions that were strange and unusual because people got bit by the sunk cost fallacy and couldn't get out of it. Also, by the way, uh, this quit thing that's in our culture, it used to be a nice dirty word that we've lost, Uh poltroon you talk about this in the book poltroon if you could you briefly say what happened when somebody was called a poltroon to their uh, and it got back to them because that used to be a really terrible thing you would call somebody
1: yeah so poltroon basically means quitter Mm -hmm. and if you called somebody a poltroon it was grounds for a duel (laughs) and so my understanding is andrew jackson got called a poltroon Poltroon challenged someone to a duel, killed them, and then got elected president. (laughs) That's right. Because everybody was like, "Well, yeah, of course." Like he called you a poltroon. Like you had every right to shoot the guy.
0: Yeah, don't call me a quitter. Like, come on.
1: No, Uh, I'll show you. It was literally grounds for like, I'm now going to shoot you, and then everybody agrees with me. So. There you go. Yeah,
0: and I think about the other dude in the duo. He could have backed out, but he didn't want to be seen as a quitter either. And the no, whole thing right? spiraled out. <laughs> there's, a, there's something that I saw a lot in the book of this. Uh, you know, I'm a huge fan of survivorship bias or just a nerd about it. And um, it's that thing where you feel like, well, the people I respect in, in whatever world that you're in, that you aspire to, they're the ones who never quit. They never quit in the face. They stuck with it. They stuck in the face of, of adversity. But am I wrong in assuming like, you just don't see all the things they quit at and that they 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 use the techniques you're talking about in the book to find the path to the thing that was the better option it's just that part of the story because we have such this weirdness about the idea of failure and quitting we just redact that from the story and we only tell you about that one thing that worked out for them am i sort of in the right space there yeah
1: so there's you are there there's two issues with those stories the first is just straight up survivorship bias right which you're referring to which is Uh, we only hear about the people who stuck to it. We don't hear about the people who stuck to it and didn't get anywhere, which is most of them. So, And then what happens is that we, we think that what works in retrospect will always also work prospectively. So the fact is that in order to have succeeded at something, you will have had to stick to it. That's Angela Duckworth's point, which is a completely true and valid point. The problem is that That doesn't mean that if you stick to things, you'll succeed, despite whatever aphorisms we have that say that that's true. Um, And so that's, that's part of the problem right there. But then the other issue is what you said is that we have some sort of idea that these people just stuck with their first idea. And like, everybody told them no, and they just kept going. And then all of a sudden, they were successful. But um, just so people know, like, for example, we think about Startup founders is you know the Mark Zuckerbergs like founding something at the age of nineteen and quitting school and kind of sticking with that forever. But the average age of a successful founder, what on the day at the the age when they found the company is actually in their forties, because these people have failed a lot. They've done a whole bunch of stuff. They've tried stuff. It hasn't worked. They haven't achieved product market fit. Can't acquire customers. Whatever, and they quit it. And so it's the serial aren't entrepreneurs that end up being really successful because they tried a bunch of stuff and then they found the thing that was worth sticking to, um, to be able to see you know where they saw what other people didn't see. And I think that this is something that's incredibly important to understand is that it's not so much that uh, we need to get good good at quitting because it doesn't make sense that if you just stick to things, you'll succeed. It's that it's a prerequisite. Because in order to find the thing that's worth sticking to, you have to do a lot of exploration, which means you're going to explore a whole bunch of stuff that, you know, ends up in the trash pile of ideas. And those are all things that you've quit. So, you know, I just don't think that we appreciate like how important this option is to us and why we need to really skill up on it.
0: (laughs) And now we take a break from our program for a word from our sponsors. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. And I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor. And I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event. And was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing. What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you. So you can do more of it. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you'll get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a the therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives, to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. Twenty-five. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks. And drive down costs. And one. Because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No. You get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing. Absolutely free. You just go to NetSuite.com slash smart. You get it for free. That's NetSuite dot com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. What I like about all this book is that, you could focus on poker, you could focus on mountain climbing, whatever. But the idea is that these are psychological phenomena that emerge from any human brain, because this is how cognition works. And that's why the Kahneman Tversky stuff is so great. Is that once you're in it, you use that phrase a couple times. It's really hard to make the good decision. And some of the advice you give is about things you can do before you're in it to create sort of measures of when you ought to be quitting. And uh, I won't give that away. Buy the book, people. Those are the bullet points you need to get to. I want to talk about some of the things that happen when you are in it that you're tr- that you're talking about dealing with. Uh, we don't have a whole lot of a time for that, but I want to try to get two in. One is just uh, the fact that you use Katamari Damacy as, uh, as a metaphor oh my thrilled God, I me to know, that. Ed. Uh, what did you use? I'm not going to give it away. How wh- how and why did you use that? And uh, if you could tell people what that even is, uh, I, got, I loved it.
1: Okay. This is a game that my daughter was obsessed with. I used to watch her play this game and it never occurred to me at the time when like she was obsessed with this game that I would then be able to use it for something. So Katamari, Katamari is a game where the, the premise is that a king got drunk um, and destroyed a whole bunch of stars and planets. So we'll kind of wipe those out. And his son, the prince now needs to create new stars and planets and he gives him a katamari which is japanese for clump a little tiny clump that he's now going to roll around stuff and any if you if the clump runs into something that's bigger than it 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 sort of falls apart and becomes small again but if it runs if, if it goes over something that's smaller than it it grows okay so in the beginning you can only pick up like a thumbtack but if you do this well you're then picking up cats and cows and houses and trees. And as one critic put it, then you're ripping bloody rainbows out of the ground, right? As you grow. And then it, once it gets big enough, it replaces a star. So the thing that the, the reason why I talked about that, I mean, it's separate and apart from it thrilled me that I, I was like, Oh, the, my daughter's obsession. I can actually use this. Is that a lot of the problems that we have with quitting, um, are things that build on themselves. So they grow like the Katamari. They start off as just a little bit of friction against quitting. And then as we don't quit, because of that little bit of friction, there becomes more friction and more friction and more friction and more friction that keeps stopping us from quitting. So let's take something like the sunk cost fallacy. And I think that we can get to it here. So the sunk cost fallacy is very simply that we make the error of taking into account what we've already spent and deciding whether to continue and spend more. So in the simplest sense, you buy a stock at 50, it's now trading at 40, you're $10 down. Do you now continue to hold it, which is the same as buying? So if you continue to hold it, that's saying that if I were to approach this as a fresh decision today, I would be willing to buy this stock. And what the sunk cost fallacy shows is that in situations where you would not buy that stock today, You will continue to hold it because you are down $10. Now, that's a really huge mistake. And part of it is that we think about waste as a backward-looking problem, but I don't want to waste that time. Or like with a job, I don't want to waste the the time and effort and all the training that I put into this thing. If I quit, I'll have wasted that. But the issue is that waste is really a forward-looking problem. Should I put the next dollar, the next bit of time, or the next bit of effort into something? And that's really the question. And we shouldn't waste more going forward because we're worried about losing what's already lost. So that's the sunk cost effect. So now let's think about the Katamari problem here, which is let's say that I've accumulated some losses, right? So I've put some time into a job, or I've made an investment that's kind of on the way down, or I've put I've already started a, down a project, or I'm developing a product or whatever it might be, I've now, I'm starting to accrue sunk costs. So now I come to some decision about whether I want to quit. I take those sunk costs into account. I now don't quit and I continue. And what does that make me do? It makes me put more time, more effort, more money into what I'm doing. So now I'm accruing even more sunk costs, which then when I now come to the next quitting decision are going to make it even harder to quit because now what my Katamari has grown. Right. And this just keeps going on over and over and over again, creating this huge bias against quitting. So thank you, Maude, my oldest Mm -hmm. daughter, for obsessively playing that game (laughs) so much where I just said, what is this game? I don't understand why she's so so obsessed with it, but it ended up being used to good purpose.
0: I love it. And and for everyone uh, listening, uh, Richard Thaler, who did a lot of the landmark work that produced this word, this phrase, the sunk cost fallacy and helped create the research that has lasted to this day, uh, helped you with the material. Like it's, it's, you got it firsthand. That's pretty incredible. Yeah.
1: So one of the things that he talks about that I think he really pushed me on um, to get into the book was, so obviously like I'm familiar with his, this paper in 1980 that uh, is so seminal where he identifies the sunk cost fallacy for the first time as a general phenomenon. Um, As he puts it, uh, Economists used to use it as a dismiss, right? So economists used to try to say that everybody's rational, and then someone would bring up a, ish, you know, a question of like, well, this person doesn't seem to be rational, and they would say, oh, that's just sunk cost, as if it was nothing. And he was the first person who said, this isn't just nothing; it's not an exception. This is really a rule of human behavior. And he also identifies the endowment effect in that paper. I mean, this. So these things, you know, I talked to him about, but I, I you know, well researched already knew. The thing that he really pushed me on was to sort of bring these things together into this umbrella concept that has to do with mental accounting. So you can think about, you know, we have ledger sheets, right? Like you buy a bunch of stocks and you have some, some, you know, P and L that's associated with each of those stocks. Well, what he talks about is that when we start something, we open up a mental account for it. So that's true, whether we buy a stock or we start a job or we start a relationship or we start a project, whatever it might be, we now have a mental account open for that. And we, as we sort of move along in that, we can start to accrue losses in that mental account, right? And to be clear, that could be like we've actually lost, like I bought the stock at 50 and now it's trading at 40. But these losses that we're accruing are a cognitive phenomenon. So what that means is like if I buy a stock at 50 and it goes to 75 and goes back down to 60, in my mental account, I'm in the losses. Even though like on my ledger i made 10 dollars that's not the way i experience it cuz i was at 75 if i run 13 miles of a marathon like objectively i'm I, i'm 13 miles richer than i used to be but cognitively i'm 13.2 miles in the losses compared to that ultimate goal so he talks about this phenomenon of these mental accounts being in the losses and he just makes the point, and this relates obviously to sunk costs, that we don't like to close mental accounts and the losses. It's just as simple as that. Because, and this goes back to work that and Tversky did, as long as you keep the gamble on, in other words, as long as the account is still open, maybe things will go your way and you can wipe those losses off the books. Right. Maybe it can all be worth your time. And so we want to keep the account open so that we don't have to take those losses. And this becomes like thematically a really huge issue in our bias against quitting, particularly because, again, it's a cognitive phenomenon. It's the way that we're processing the world that determines whether we think we're in the losses or not. And whether we're going to have to take that and sort of take that from like a loss on the books into a realized loss.
0: And we're going to do the Q&A in a second, but I want people to know what we're talking about right here. Some of these books can be just descriptions of things that you should know about. Your book has things you should do to avoid the bad outcomes that come from all of these biases and weird cognitive effects.
1: That are science-backed. I didn't make them up. (laughs)
0: <laughs> that are sides backed that are just things you wrote on a notepad and said that'd be fun to put in the book and uh th- weird things like quit coaches and things like that but also very practical things that i was like oh this is fun to read and i can't get wait to talk to annie about this but then i was like oh wait no i got life advice from this that i'm going to use for forever so thank you. Oh, thank you it's it's really good it's a fantastic book i hope you hope everyone gets it if you do get it tell everybody else to get it so for the sake of uh you know people are here because they want to ask questions and get a chance to hang out with you i uh, have been directed to click on these buttons here. One of them is Q and a, uh, if you want to look at it with me, we can answer some of these. I'm going to start with number one, just because number one, you got it in there first anonymous attendee. What decisions do you not make as well as you should given your research? This is just directed direct uh, right at you.
1: Okay. Yeah. That's an easy one to answer all of them. Um, and I'm not being facetious. So, here, here's the thing about human decision-making is we're, you know, there's all sorts of errors that we make. I mean, if you read anything like Thinking Fast and Slow, for example, Dave, David's books, um, we're just riddled with error. And, and the question is like, are we doing better than we otherwise would have? So Just as an example of like one of the things that I recommend is if we're really bad at the decision when we're facing it down, like it's hard to eat healthy when there's an open box of chocolates in front of you. Mm -hmm. Think in advance about how you can avoid those chocolates or like have better behavior toward those chocolates. Um, One of the things that we did in poker was we would have loss limits. And these loss limits would try to improve our decision making when we were in the losses in a game. So in other words, if I bought into a game and I was like, I would say, all right, if I'm losing $2,000, then I have to get up and quit. And the reason for that was that I just kind of recognized in advance that I wasn't going to be very good at the decision about whether to quit when I was actually in the, in the, in the losses like that, like when I had actually had lost $2,000 uh, and it was that moment where I was going to have to decide to get up from the table and actually put that, write that in a notebook was going to feel really bad to me. And if I knew that I was going to be a bad decision maker at that moment, then I was going to decide in advance. And so I would set this loss limit. So here's the thing that made me better. But that didn't mean that I always got up when I hit my loss limit, but I was just more likely to do it. And in the long run, as you sort of get a little bit better at these things, because you're putting in these these strategies, it really pays off in the long run. So the answer is, I don't think I make any decisions as well as I should, given what my research is, because I'm not objective and none of us are. We're all living in our own perspective, just trying to get better at this stuff.
0: I'm gonna to go to the bottom of the list because those people almost never get their things answered. Uh, Aaron Pengilnian. you have an interesting thing here. We're trying to start beef, apparently, uh, Annie, with lots of people. Uh, this time it's uh, Gary V. Uh, the uh, what do you think about Gary V. saying it's smart to quit in under three months at a job when you know it's not a good fit? Whereas prior thinking said you should be there a year so you could put it on your resume. What do you think about this?
1: I'm not an expert in what your resume is supposed to look like. So let me just say that. (laughs) Um, Generally, these are all have to do with cost benefit analysis. So if you determine determine that the benefits of not looking like you bounce from job to job outweigh the costs of being miserable in your work, that is a value decision for you. So this is one of the things that I want to say is that I give lots of advice about how to get better at quitting, but I'm not persuading. Prescriptive and telling you what you should or shouldn't quit because that's not up to me. These have to do with your own values. So, when we decide if a path is worthwhile for us, what we're weighing is the benefits, what are we getting out of it, right? Versus the costs. And those facts on the ground can change. As we go along. So as an example, from deciding that I want to climb Everest, it's costing me time with my family, it's costing me a lot of money, it's costing me my own comfort. And so I am purposely like deprivileging those things that I value for uh, doing something that no human being has, you know, or very few human beings actually managed to achieve. So, you know, really feeling like that's going to give me fulfillment. Now, there's lots of people who don't think that the benefits of making it to the summit are worth those costs, but then there are people who do, and that's totally fine. as long as you include in that, But if the conditions change, then I will react to it. So, uh, yes, I'm going to continue up the mountain unless, right? Like a snowstorm comes in, and then I really ought to walk away from this. And I would say it's the true with any it's true with any job. So you're going to come in with some idea, right? which is, Uh, I'm hoping the job is going to work out this particular way. Here are the signs that it's working out well. Here will be the signs that it's working out poorly. Um, And I have this goal, which maybe I want a year on my resume because that's going to give me future benefits. Maybe it's not. And then that's how you're sort of figuring this stuff out is what are your values? What are the things you're willing to give up in order to get the things that you want? So, um, you know, I just think that any rules about these things, hopefully we can avoid those, right? And Say for now, this is what I believe to be true, but that may, the facts on the ground may change, and I'm going to think in advance about how I might react to those things.
0: Frederick Banson asks in the quit versus grit dilemma, what do you think of the idea of using a hierarchy of goals to help with quitting decisions? And I, I like that this, this question because you've got a whole chapter about goals. you talk about goals a whole lot and you poo-poo on goals a little bit.
1: I poo-poo on them a lot.
0: (laughs) Yeah. uh, I open the floor to talking about goals and what do you think about creating a hierarchy?
1: Okay. So um, first of all, I'm a big fan of a hierarchy of goals because basically what a hierarchy of goals does is get you from short-term to long-term. And really what we should be doing is, you know, one of the things I say is like poker is one long game. Well, so is life. So uh, the longer the time horizon on your goals the better off you're going to be in terms of really achieving those things, because when we think about whether something is worthwhile continuing, um, it should be in the context of what your long-term goals are, not your short-term ones. So a uh, fan of that. That being said, um, there's a downside to goals. So very clear goals that tell somebody, you know, this is what you're trying to accomplish, and here, here's what you're reaching for, uh, we know are very good motivators, right? So I'm not saying you shouldn't, you shouldn't have goals. Obviously you should, it gives you a direction uh, and it will generally help you to achieve those things uh, with a higher probability. That being said, what you want to watch out for is the goal becoming the object. So uh, remember goal is a proxy for a cost benefit analysis, right? I'm going to, I'm going to do this thing, but that's going to cost me the ability to do other things. Okay, so that's that's what a goal basically is because all the time that I'm spending on this project is time I couldn't be spending on another project. If I'm pursuing a sales lead, it's time I can't spend on another sales lead. If I go on this date, it's time I can't go out on a date with somebody else. If I'm in this job, it's time I can't be doing another job at the exact same time. So we have to remember that when you decide to pursue something that you're deciding it's worthwhile in comparison to the other things that you might pursue. But then what happens is the goal becomes an object it becomes the object of your desire, right? And we lose sight of the fact that it's a proxy for a cost-benefit analysis. And what that means is we'll run headlong toward the goal no matter what, because goals are pass-fail in nature. What do I mean by that? Well, I think it's best sort of exemplified by this woman, Siobhan O'Keefe. In 2019, she's running the, the London Marathon. On mile four, her leg really starts to hurt. On mile eight, she snaps her fibula bone. She literally broke her leg. Now, I assume we all share the intuition. Well, if I were running a marathon and I broke my leg on mile eight, I would stop. Um, and why would you stop? Because you're costing yourself the ability to run in the future. Like you, it could turn into a compound fracture. You're certainly extending your, your um, time. And again, in, in that hierarchy of goals, if what we're thinking is, I want to do these really cool things that most people don't do to be healthier and more fulfilled over time, then stacking the finish line of that marathon in between that, and that being the object is gonna be a bad thing because it will likely make you wanna continue, which is exactly what happened to her. She kept going toward the finish line and in fact, finished the race. Unless you think that she's unusual, three other people in the same race did the same thing. And if you just Google like people finishing with broken bones and marathons, you're gonna see like tons and tons and tons of Google hits come up. Why? Because there's a finish line that's a fixed object. And we grade goals as pass fail. If I run 20 miles of a marathon, I have failed. I didn't succeed in running 20 miles. I failed in reaching 26. If I get to 300 feet from the summit of Everest, I failed. So this is the problem with goals is that they are fixed They become a proxy and then we grade them pass fail. And then what that means is that once we're concentrated, like at all costs on on getting to that goal, we lose sight of all the other things we could do with that time, which is clearly what happens to Siobhan O'Keefe, right? Like she lost sight of all the races she wasn't going to be able to run because of what had happened to her to her leg. So. My whole thing is, first of all, make sure your goals are long term, which has to do with goal stacking, right? Like, how are we thinking about a hierarchy of goals? Make sure you're concentrating on the long thing, but also make sure that you have unlesses attached to your goal. I'm going to run the race unless I break my leg. I'm going to play in this poker game unless I'm losing $2,000. I'm going to stay in this job unless leadership turns out to be toxic and I find myself taking sick days because I don't want to go to work. Right. I mean, that that's the thing that we need to to stop is the goal itself from becoming the object of our desire.
0: I love it. It's such an opportunity to put your values at play uh, ahead of time before you're in the middle of something and you're doing silly algorithmic stuff that brains do. The goal question, I like how that intuited something that you already addressed in the book. This one does something as well that intuits something that's in the book. My favorite part of the book, actually. How do you separate your identity? This is from Vanessa Pant. How do you separate your identity from whatever you are quitting if you invested a big portion of your life yeah on that identity this is a great question
1: oh gosh so yeah there's a chapter called identity and other impediments uh and the, it really has to do with this issue which is or I, actually it's a section that's called that with a chapter said which is the hardest thing to quit is who you are so this is a really big problem that we have is that the things we do and the things we believe become part of our identity and particularly when that's the case, it becomes very, very hard for us to walk away from things. And, you know, I think that we all share the intuition that when the world tells us something that we believe isn't true, it tells us that the path we're on is not one we should be following, that we will obviously pay attention to the world. If we're running a marathon and we break our leg, we're not going to keep going. If we're climbing Everest and a snowstorm rolls in, we'll stop. And decades and decades of research shows us that we do not do that. And we particularly don't do that when it's a question of identity. So just a quick s- story about this so that we can see like really what the cost to us of this is. Um, so most people are familiar with Sears, which is a retail company uh, that had stores where you would go buy things. I think most people also know it went bankrupt. So uh, in the late 1800s, it was founded as a catalog company, the book of bargains, 512 pages. Um Around the 1930s, uh, when people started driving cars, uh, they started figuring out that the catalogs weren't quite as valuable because people were mo- more mobile. And so they started opening up retail locations, which is the way that I remember Sears. By 19. 19- the 1950s, Sears represented 1% of the um, U.S. gross national product. I mean, it was a behemoth, like crazy store. Now, what happens is that sort of 60s and 70s, the Walmarts and the Kmarts come along and they start squeezing Sears from the bottom. And then also like Nordstrom's and some higher end stores start squeezing them from the top and they just find their place in the retail space to be narrower and narrower. By the 90s, they're no longer the number one retailer uh, and then they go bankrupt. So everybody remembers that story about Sears. What people probably don't know, though, is that Sears was also a financial services company. Um, really, mainly they had credit that they gave to their customers. But the main start of this journey is that when they opened those retail stores to accommodate cars, that someone had a very good idea, which is, well, people need insurance for those cars. So why don't we start to offer insurance in our stores to them? And they founded a company called Allstate Insurance. So Allstate gr- comes to be the the largest insurer of personal liability. Um, uh, in the US in the uh 70s they acquire a company called Dean Witter which is a very big stock brokerage um they also create something called the Discover card maybe you've heard of it and they acquire a company called Coldwell Banker so the combined assets of those it's hard to say because um Dean Witter doesn't exist anymore but uh Morgan Stanley eventually acquired it and uh it represented 40% of Morgan Stanley's worth at the time. So let's just call that lots of money. Um but at the at the time that I was writing the book, Allstate's market cap was 40 billion dollars alone. Okay, so we're talking about billions and billions of dollars worth of net worth. So so now the question is why are they broke? I mean, I assume that's the question, right? David like hold on a second. They owned Allstate Insurance. That's weird. Why are they broke? They had Discover Card. Why are they broke? And the answer is that as they started to get pushed out and it gets to be the 90s where they're no longer the number one retailer, uh, the shareholders are demanding action. They've got these assets, the retail business that are failing. They've got these other assets, the financial services businesses that are just absolutely booming. And it goes to the board. What are we going to do about this company and these retail locations? And they say, we're going to get back to our retailing roots. So they sell off all the financial services assets in order to save the retail business. Why? Because they were a retailer.
0: Mm-hmm. We're Sears. We're Sears. Every mall, it in every mall, people know us.
1: Yeah, nobody even knows. Nobody knows that they, that they had Allstate. So they sell off all that stuff and go broke. Now, this is what you're doing every single day of your life. When you have beliefs that are part of your identity, you're selling all your stuff off that's good. Um, Particularly when facts start to come in conflict with that identity that you're holding. And in particular, we have to be really careful when that identity is staking out ground that is, uh, is non-consensus. You can kind of think about it this way. So, David, I assume at one point in your life, you believed that Pluto was a planet. I did. <laughs> but so did everybody else. So there's nothing, there, you're not staking your identity on your beliefs around Pluto because it's something that everybody believes, right? So when you now find out when some scientist comes along and says, oh, by the way, Pluto is not a planet anymore, you're you're not saying, no, I reject you, It that it is a planet, I'm going to hold on to the belief. No, you just let it go. But it's not true if you believe the earth is flat because they they believe something that is naturally part of their identity because they're staking out very extreme ground, right? This is this is very non-consensus. So when the facts come into conflict with that, they reject it. They reject the facts and they cling to their beliefs. And this is true also for people who are like really financially motivated not to do this. So they had uh, Katie Milkman and John Brashears did a study on stock analysts and who were just making earnings projections for companies. And when they made projections that were, consensus projections and the earnings came in and conflicted with their conflict uh, conflicted with their forecast rather they updated their forecast but when they made an earnings estimate that was way out of consensus and then the earnings estimate came in and it didn't agree with them they doubled down they escalated their commitment to those forecasts so these become really really difficult problems and the really the only way to deal with this kind of stuff is to do two things, is not try to do it now because you're going to be protecting your identity, but say, what could I see in the future that would cause me to change my mind? And then, as you said, quitting coaches, go find someone to declare that to, to help you with the decision. Because otherwise it's going to be impossible. We just want to be viewed as consistent. We want our identities to be consistent.
0: Yeah. Trust, trustworthy members of the groups to which we owe allegiance. That
1: is exactly right.
0: We want to be considered trustworthy and consistent and those factors are way more motivating than whatever math yeah. you've worked out in your ledger. That's, that's social primate stuff. It's strong. That's
1: exactly right. So don't try to do it today. You have to look into the future and say, what could I see in the future that would tell me that this belief that I hold is not true. And, you know, and this is true. Like, I mean, we can see this for political beliefs. It's like people will support candidates where had you asked them before they actually started their support and said, if they, you knew this set of facts, would you support them? They would say, absolutely not. But the minute that bumper sticker goes on the card, the minute the sign is in their front yard, or they cast a vote, because that vote also informs who their identity is. Now, when those new facts come in, what do they do? They rationalize them away. They say, oh no, but the other stuff they do is great, or the other guy is worse, or you know, all of this, these ways that we can reject the facts. And so you have to be really conscious of that for yourself and start setting out. Like, what could I see in the future that would make me drop my support as an example?
0: We're going to wrap this up in three minutes. So who do you hope is the person who picks this book up and what do you hope they get out of it? Like, what is, who is the audience that you hope this goes to? Like, some people write books and they think, you know, this, this is a business book or some people think this is a book for uh, people in tech world and um there's a lot of uh there were some nft questions in the chat about people who are like i I didn't know when to quit or when not to quit what are you thinking
1: yeah who do i so here's the thing like all of my books obviously are are sort of generally more a little bit business books um but i'll tell you with this book um i you know when i was writing it i did do a couple of uh, just a handful like maybe two or three podcasts where i was sort of road testing you know, which I'm sure you do as well, David. Mm-hmm. Um, where you're kind of trying out some of the ideas. And I was I was on Maya Shankar's podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, which is wonderful. Everybody should be a subscriber of that podcast. Love, love Maya. And I was talking about this, and someone wrote into me and said, you know, I I just always thought like in order to have character and you have to be gritty, that this is a really important quality for you to develop in yourself. And I heard your podcast. And I just want to thank you because I was in a job that was a really toxic situation. And I felt like I couldn't quit because it would have been a failure of my character. And I quit today. And I'm so thankful and I'm really happy. And that's who the book is for. I mean, to be quite honest, like I'm sort of tearing up. Like The thought that something that I wrote allowed someone to see that you don't just have to stick to things. That that's not what it's about. Like That in itself is not good that sticking to things that are worthwhile is good. But if it's not like your life is too short, like free yourself up from these situations that you're in and see that it doesn't mean that you're a failure. It means that you're a success. I mean, like really like I'm just sort of.
0: It means you're a human being. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, and that she wrote that to me, like it was just, it was so amazing to get that note. And it's like, that's who I wrote the book for. That's it.
0: Annie. Thank you so much for this. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for writing this book. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Thank you, thank you to, to everyone else who came here.
1: Thank you. And thank you for everyone for pre-ordering. I'm so grateful to everybody for supporting my work, reading my work. You know, we authors, we send stuff out in the world and cross our fingers that people will want to read what we've written. And um, none of this happens without all of you. So I'm, I just want to sh- shout out some like incredible gratitude to everybody who came to listen to me and David chat with each other.
0: That's it. That's the end of this episode. YouAreNotSoSmart.com. You can find links to everything we talk about in every episode there. And you can also support this whole operation, help make it better, help pay for transcription and other features by going to Patreon.com slash YouAreNotSoSmart. Pitching in at any amount gets you the show ad-free, but the higher amounts get you posters, t-shirts, signed books, and other stuff. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace, and the easiest way to support this show is to just tell everybody about it when there's an episode that really sticks with you that gives you some value tell people about it and you can follow me at david mcraney on twitter follow the show at not smart and you can check in in about two weeks for a fresh new episode